My guest today is Liam Halpin. Liam is the VP of LinkedIn Sales Solutions, and he's joining me today learning a little bit more about Liam. Liam, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul, and I appreciate the invite. Not at all. My, it's my, my great pleasure. I uh, like to start off, Liam, maybe go back a little bit. I understand that you're a native of Kildare. You live there currently. Maybe tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Kildare and what it was like for you as a kid, circumstances, kind of things you like to do and enjoy. Sure. Um, well, I, I was, I'm one of seven children, <clears throat> born, on the, uh, born on the Curra camp. My, um, my, my dad was in the army for 34 years. Um, you know, Ireland, late 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s, uh, wasn't a particularly um, uh, salubrious place, let's put it that way. So, uh, so, so, so like everybody else in Ireland at the time, or most people in Ireland at the time, it was a, uh, it was a good and happy uh, upbringing, but um, th there was, uh, you know, everything salubrious we used to watch on television, on the one channel. And black and white, possibly too. And right? absolutely black and white. I had this conversation with somebody the other day. Uh, actually, just you know, many of I went to school in uh, the Patrician Brothers and also the primary school in 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 Newbridge, just down the road. And actually, you know, many of my friends that I went to school with, they also could access BBC and ITV. But uh, because of the topology of where the current is located and particularly the part of the current that I lived in were down in a hollow and therefore uh, the only station we could get was uh, Radio Telefisha Aaron as it was uh, the, described at the time so um, and you'd literally watch anything on it right that was the that was the that that was the vibe so very much black and white and also uh, very much back in the day of um, of where you you turn the frequency dial as opposed to pressing the channel button yeah, I understand it a hundred percent. Grew up Kilkenny, black and white, an old Bush TV that you'd smack on the top when it wouldn't work. <laughs> know what that's like. Um, what I'm interested in is, you said first of all, you're one of seven. Where do you come in the in the line? I'm number two. Number two, interesting. And you said your father was army. How do you think that that influenced you having a parent who was? had that army discipline and yeah I, I think there's a there's a couple of things there paul um so first of all you know had you had we had this interview back when i was six or seven or all the way up to around about 12 or 13 um and had you asked me you know what what did i believe the future held for me uh, i would have been extremely clear on that it was a career in the military right so that was um that was definitely how I wanted my life to turn out. My dad had different ideas. <clears throat> and, and actually, you know, my dad's journey in the army uh, was definitely a source of inspiration for me in that, uh, you know, my, my um, you know, my, my, my grandfather was a sheep herder in the Wicklow Mountains in the late 1800s, uh, moved his family to Newbridge. Um, you know, my grandfather was born in 1902. My grandfather was the first person in my family who didn't work the land and um, worked, in, worked in Irish ropes um, in, 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 in the current, or sorry, in, in Newbridge. And uh, then, you know, my dad was the first person in his family to get, uh, you know, an intermediate certificate, as it's called, and our first person to go to secondary school and then um, didn't do the leaving at the time and joined the army. Um, and then subsequently did the leaving in the army as part of a, part of a course, but he joined as a private um, and sometime in the uh, in the in the 60s um, and early 60s. And, and then in 1979, my dad uh, was one of a small number of people who were promoted to a, a commissioned officer. So uh, so my and, and my dad retired as a, as a captain out of the army, which is uh, so very much a uh, an inspiration for me in terms of. You know, it doesn't matter where you start. It matters what you do and where you go. Um, so, traveled. And, and, you know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, I, I always had a, an interest in science and in computers and science fiction. And um, as you can probably see, about 2000 AD comics be, behind me. Uh, sorry, 
my Alexa is kicking off because I call my Alexa. Uh, we won't we, we won't say the word C O M P U T E R. Computer cancel. Uh, you know what? I used to wear an Apple Watch. Uh, during these calls and I stopped doing it because Siri would interrupt me in the middle of a class and it would say, I can't find that. I'm going, I didn't even ask you. <laughs> Stop, I went back to the old fashioned. So yeah, so, so, uh, so I've, I always had an interest in, um, in, in science, computing, technology. <clears throat> and actually, um, I it would have, probably would have been around 1980 when I was 13, going on 14, uh, my dad bought me a Sinclair ZX81 uh, computer. And I actually got, you know, super interested in programming and you know, spending hours and hours typing in and then saving it to a C60 cassette tape. And, um, you know, so my dad sort of encouraged me on that path. And actually, when I was 17, um, I wrote two video games that were sold to a, a now defunct um, record company called Chime Music. They were getting into the software business, um, and uh, that, that was that was on a platform um, which was called an Atmos, which was a joint venture between a French company and Texas Instruments. Um, and that was just on the cusp of, um, you know, when that whole home computing uh, era. You had the BBC Micro. You had the uh, the, the Commodore 64, all that sort of stuff was coming in. Actually, it was pre pre Commodore 64, the Amiga. That's the that's the one I was trying to remember the name. I remember of. them, and um, and that gave me a, a new perspective. Like to put it in perspective, it would have been 1984, and um, I got paid two thousand pounds at the time, which wow. was a phenomenal amount of money. Considering that's insane for that. I like that's insane for 1984 for that, for a young guy. Yeah, that was a huge. That that was a phenomenal amount of money for me at the at at at, at the at the time. Yeah. And um, I also got royalties for a couple of years after. But that whole home computing industry imploded. Um, and in addition to that, I'd been doing some stuff in uh, in uh, secondary school. And actually, a friend of mine uh, and I we developed a um, a mechanism that for. Um, recording uh so taking a videotape and being able to record computer graphics over it and at the time that wasn't being used by rte um we we we, we made the mistake of uh, of not commercializing that okay we literally a couple of people asked us how we were able to do it and we yeah. told them for free um and uh so hey you live and learn right when you're yeah. when you're 17 and you're enthusiastic you want to tell everybody everything uh, so, so that whole, so, so that changed my trajectory. Um, mm. Clearly, um, it would have taken a long time to earn two thousand uh, pounds in the army uh, at that time. Um, and my next trajectory was I was going to go and do computer science in um, what was called the IT Carlo at the time. Mm. And, you know, I went got, there myself. Yeah, got the got the points and and all the rest that I needed in my leave insert. However, I had been uh, also working part-time um, after, after school. In, from, from the age of about 16, I was financially self-sufficient. Obviously, my parents provided me with somewhere to live and food, but everything else, I uh, tried to be financially self-sufficient. So I was working part-time in Superquin uh, as well. And actually, just as I was doing my leaving, um, Superquin asked me, would I be interested in a training manager program? Um, and they were going to send me to the uh, College of Commerce on Manchester Square twice a tw twice a week in the evenings and learn about retail law and HR and mm. all, all, that, all that good stuff. And and contextually at the time, Paul, it was you know nineteen percent unemployment in Ireland. You know the joke was, "Will the last person leaving the country please turn out the lights?" Yeah. Um, it was very. It's difficult for. People who are, you know, younger than forty-five or, or even forty to envisage, you know, what Ireland in the in the mid nineteen eighties was really like from an economic perspective. Mm. And this was, you know, way before the LinkedIn's and the Microsofts and the Intels yeah. and everybody else had, yeah. had, had 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 arrived on these shores. Yeah, I remember and, a joke from back then, Liam. You'll identify with this, and it might help contextualize it for people. This was serious. It was like the joke was, "What do you say to an Irishman with a degree?" Uh, bag of chips, please. Uh, what do you say to an Irish man with a master's? 
tell him to hurry up with my chips. Yeah. Because uh, that, and we was using humor, but it was humor as a way of yeah. dealing and, with this. Yeah. The version of that that I've heard is pick or shovel. Because right, a lot yeah. of us were, you know, a yeah. lot of us were leaving the country and going to work on building sites in the UK, yeah. Germany, and then, and, and, and those who could get into the, into the US. So, so, so I actually made a decision at that time that, um, going to college was probably not economically viable. And I made a decision to take that role. Um, and I, you know, I'm really glad I did, um, you know, working for Superquin um, gave me a, a, a fantastic grounding in how to deal with people and the concept of, you know, the customer being king and, 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 you know, how to treat your colleagues. And, you know, Superquin, Superquin was very much uh, at the time, you know, it was way ahead of, um, of, of, of everybody else who was, was in the marketplace. Um, you know, Fergal Quinn was very hands-on, um, you know, not, not afraid to give you feedback, um, you know, and all, the phrase that stays with me is, you know, uh, you know, if, you're, if your mother was shopping, would you give her that one? Because if it's not good enough for your mother, it's not good enough for any of the customers. So, so great, great, great grounding. And, and <clears throat> I spent a couple of years doing that. I, I, I initially worked in NACE, moved to uh, Knockline, spent some time in, uh, in Black Rock, loved the job. Uh, and, and, and then uh, a friend of mine, um, how I got into sales, a friend of mine um, had um, disappeared off the scene for a while, ended up uh, coming back. He was working in Germany, selling cars to American um, soldiers. So, um, so on, a, uh, on, a, on, on I call it a whim, um, I made a decision I was gonna go and help him do that. And as a consequence of that, you know, very shortly after that, I was like, am I crazy? But I just, I just decided to do it. It was one of those things of that uh, I could see my career going well at Superquin, but I had felt at that stage that, that I had more to give. And okay. so made that decision, went over, did extremely well. Uh, that business was based on, um, I worked for a company called uh, Overseas Military Sales Group. We sold cars for personal use to troops, uh, predominantly um, uh, the Chrysler cars, so Plants and Dodges, uh, but I also sold Harley Davidson because uh, the company I worked for had the agency, which was pretty cool. Um, and I did that for three years, was doing really well, uh, earning a lot more money than I was earning uh, working for Superquin. Um, and then the first Gulf War happened. And as a consequence of that, um, you know, I remember it like it's yesterday, you know, George Bush Sr. Uh, appearing on American Forces Network and saying that uh, he was standing up something called Desert Shield, um, and, um, and, if I, and and then that became Desert Storm. Uh, I've actually got one of the mission patches on the shelf behind me uh, from from that. And at the time, I was given a choice. Um, you know, you need to go. Do you want to go to Saudi Arabia, uh, or do you want to go to Panama? Um, and I made a decision to go to Panama. Um, so came back to Ireland for a, for a short period of time. Uh, there was a family medical emergency at the time, and I ended up staying. And um, so uh, that was my pivot then to work in a B2B. And, you know, I started my first B2B sales job uh, late in 1991, uh, working for Canon, now selling the now defunct technology known as uh, facsimile fax machines. Right? So that was the beginning of my B2B sales career. Interesting. So... I'm curious then to know about what your journey was like in terms of how you've grown as a person, what you've learned along the way, growing from a point of where you started into sales leadership. Say, if you go back 10 years ago, what it was like for you then, kind of where you're now working with others and working through others to maybe what your, how your philosophies about leadership and about sales has changed over that time. Yeah, I think that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. You, you know, like I, I did, you know, several move from Canon to Panasonic to Brother to, to Siemens, and which became Fujitsu Siemens. And actually, you know, I am, it's funny, we had a session at LinkedIn today and I spoke about this quite openly. You know, I am a classic example of a high-performing salesperson that somebody initially made a mistake on by making me a sales manager. And, um, and, and when I say mistake was, they gave me the job because I was the best salesperson. Mm. 
and never gave me any coaching or analyzed me through the perspective of a sales leader, you know, and I, and I often talk to people about, hey, you know, Serena Williams is a fantastic, you know, multi-Wimbledon, multi-Grand Slam winning um, tennis player, but all of her coaches, none of them have ever won Wimbledon or any of those other tournaments, right? So you don't have to be the best of something to get the best out of somebody doing, doing that discipline. And, you know, my first few years of sales leadership, um, you know, this cycled back to uh, the programming thing. You know, I, I got a new boss in 2001. I was working at Fujitsu Siemens. My, I was running a channel and consumer uh, sales business, dealing with resellers and, and distributors. Uh, and my business unit, um, relative to every other similar business unit in EMEA, my team was green on everything. We were either number one or number two in everything that you could judge that business uh, by. And I got a new boss, a lady called uh, Neve Spellman. And after her sort of 30, 60 day, you know, seeing what's going on in the business as you do when you take a new leadership position, she said to me that in her opinion, I had to reach the pinnacle of my career or words to that effect. And, uh, you know, my initial reaction was, whoa, you know, what and her point was was you know at that point i had 12 people working for me mm. and she said you know this was a cordial but very open and constructive conversation around you know i can see that you're a programmer because you know what i've observed is that you're programming people right it's like do this you know mm. i've literally had a when you when we disaggregated my management style at the time was like punch cards it was like do this, if this happens, do this, if and then. Um, mm. So literally, um, you know, what I was trying to do was I was trying to um, have my team do everything as uh, an extension of me. So what I was mm. looking for was additional hands versus different brains. And that really, you know, I, I remember speaking to a mentor of mine at the time, because my initial reaction was I was actually insulted by it. And I remember sitting down with a mentor of mine and, and and going through it and you know he said look you've got two choices you you can accept that uh, that she's got a point and that you know she's coming from a perspective of that she's not asking you to leave a business she's asking you to reflect and change or you can leave and get a job somewhere else where they value that approach mm. and uh, so so I, so I, so I, so I, so I knuckled down, you know, decided I was going to, you know, I was going to become a student of management properly um, and, um, and completely changed my approach. Right. And, and, and this is about, you know, as leaders, you know, how do we tap into leverage and we tap into leverage by create, creating a vision, creating enablement, hiring smart people and letting them, letting them, uh, figure out how uh, how to do it using their way because their way could be better than your way. So 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 that was the turning point when I believe I turned from being a poor manager. You know, I was still driving results, but it, it, I don't imagine it was very good to be working on my team. I am glad to say that a number of those people who were on my team at that time. Uh, still remain to be friends and acquaintances of mine. Okay, so it kind of it wasn't all bad, um, and and that's really when I started um, realizing that you know I needed to become a I need to become a good leader, mm. not and put my sales career in the past. And then, mm. you know that's not to say I don't get involved in opportunities, but my core function is to lead for a team, provide vision, provide structure, and then help the, and, and enable the team. Mm. So let's break that down then. That, so, so at this stage now, you've, you have the awareness that there's a gap between where you are and how you've been operating. And if you want to go further, what you're going to have to change. Talk to me about the kind of things that you identified and tackled first and what was that like? What what did you take to what what was easy for you, and where were the areas you felt really struggled to make the changes? Yeah, I think that the the, the biggest thing was well, I think that the the fundamental um, the fundamental first step that I took was I got my team together and had a very open, honest, constructive conversation about hey, you know, I you know this has been brought to my attention. 
how do you guys feel? Can you give me examples where you believe that you know I've helped you? Examples where you believe I've hindered you? So I lean into that, you know, because what I didn't want is that, uh, you know, I turned up a couple of days later, and the team were like, "Hey, Liam, you know, this is invasion of the body snatchers. Liam has been replicated, and who is the, who is this person?" Because because one of the things that I'm I'm really strong on, Paul, and I encourage leaders to focus on is authenticity. You know, mm. don't bring don't bring a mask to work. Bring yourself to work. Uh, because you know if you're bringing your mask you're encouraging other people to do the same and you know we just get the best out of ourselves when yeah. your full self turns up so uh, so that was the that was the first step um, and that also it takes courage by the way to do that to be open up and be vulnerable because it's hard enough you said you know you heard it the first time that's difficult now you're opening yourself up to your team where they're going to go yeah she's right and, and you're going to hear it again and again. You're going to get all these examples. That's not easy to go through that. No, it's not. But, but you know, it, it, it would have um, been easier for me at that time to go, do you know what? Um, I've got a new boss that doesn't like me and doesn't respect me. I'm out of here. Yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, had I, had I done that, um, I, I, I don't believe that um, my career would have been as successful as as it as it as it has been okay and that and, and for me this is about the you know I, I talk to people about there there are pivot moments in your life and that they're you know so when you're faced with adversity or opportunity it's to you know sit back get some advice and then ask yourself the question is this a pivot moment yeah. um, because the, there's the, there there are probably 10 pivot moments across my 54 years personally and, and 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 professionally there's not a lot of them but when they when they present themselves they can either be very impactful or very detrimental to your you know positively impactful impactful or detrimental to you to you so you've got to you, you you've got to recognize when when you're dealing with a pivot moment mm. For sure. Come back to the end. I saw. I know I interrupted you there. You're you're about to start telling me about some of the changes where you broke it down and you said you said you brought the team together and they, I guess, validated what you'd learned, and now you're going now you're going on a journey where you have to start saying, okay, I need to change this, this, and this. Talk to me about what those were and and you know, as I said, I know the journey can't have been easy, but yeah. talk to me about about I, that I, and what I you learned. Tell you, it, this sort of you know, coalesced with with me also having exposure to um, some skills that you know I still st still use today. Which you know, so I'm a I'm a firm believer in the situational leadership framework model of you know of, of, of approaching a coaching or or a direction opportunity from the perspective of you know where's this person's confidence at related to uh, this task either a task or a longer term project and where is their uh, confidence confidence and competency and where did they sit because you know somebody can be like hugely confident but not have the competence and you can say you know knock yourself out paul do whatever you think um but actually you're going to do that person a disservice yeah. because they may fail and then it's having that open conversation of you know let's let, let's figure out you know, is this, do I mentor you in this situation? Do I coach you in this situation? Do I teach you or do I tell you based on that? And really, I think, you know, um, what's worked well for me uh, over the last 20 years is, or almost 20 years, has having that dialogue about, you know, the, the, I think the, the, the question of what do you think we should do mm. is, is a very powerful question for, for managers, you know, so what's the, what, what's the problem? What's the opportunity? What are the components of that opportunity? What options do we have? What do you think we should do? That sort of framework is hugely powerful. Um, and, you know, helping people you know, disaggregate down to a component level. Is it a people uh, issue? Is it a process issue? Is it a market issue? What, what is, you know, what's the specific issue? And taking the, taking the people out of issues as well. And just mm. focusing on what what you know what's the mm. what's the actual problem how do we solve it or what's the opportunity and how do we maximize it it's interesting because that also parallels a lot of sales journeys people go through where in the beginning it's about them where as they get more and more experienced they 
they bring their prospects and customers into that problem-solving domain and they, they come to it with not, all, not with all the answers, but see it as a collaborative process. Um, it's quite interesting to see the parallels there. Yeah, um, it, it is interesting in terms of, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, earlier on in my career, um, I would walk away from sales or advise the customer not to do it if I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And culturally at the time, you know, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, that was not necessarily something that, um, you know, I, I would say that sales in the, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s was a more adversarial buyer-seller arrangement. It was someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. Um, and, you know, in a short term, that, can, that pays you back in the short term. But, you know... I encourage people to go, look, if you if you get a quick win today and the customer doesn't get value, you are not going to get repeat business. Yeah. And 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 this is about two things. Number one is it's about your professional reputation. Because you know, you will have other roles and if you have sold to company A and and people at that company and they've not gotten value. The next time you come knocking, even if you can deliver massive value working for a different company, they may not take your calls. They may not engage with you. Um, whereas, you know, if you have focused on, you know, is this the right thing for the customer? Is it the right thing for the business that I'm working for? And is it the right thing then for me to do? Mm. And if you if you if you put the priority in that in that way, then you will deliver value to a customer that will repeat, you will be able to reference. And as, the, as those customers, you know, move around to different companies, you too can follow them in terms yeah. of uh, opportunities. And I think it's, it's um, you know, very much now, you know, looking at it from the perspective of, can my customer get value from this? And if not, you need to advise them that they need to do something different. Um, and, and, and that pays you back in the, that pays you back in the, in, in the long term because, you know, if you look at the, uh, the valuations uh, on businesses these days, it's not about your uh, revenues today. It's about what is your predictable recurring revenue. And you can only have predictable recovering revenue when you've got customers that are getting value and are feeling happy. Hmm. What do you say then to people who are maybe struggling between two, between sometimes you'll see this mix, mis, mixed messaging where you'll, you'll hear that message going out and say, look, bring value and if you can't then let them go maybe now is not the right time that on one hand and then maybe that person's working with a manager who's saying where's the deal where's the deal where's the deal where's the pipeline where's the pipeline and so you have this pressure of needing to produce but at the same time you're getting these fish that you're throwing back into the water because they're not right they don't fit and, and that can create that that tension and i'm wondering if if you saw that happening in your team between one of your managers and one of their reps, what what would you say to them to, to help them resolve that? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's you know this is the um, this is the the what what's important for, you know for for companies is to um, be clearer about where that integrity line is mm. and 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 what that. And what that means and also it's important that you know when you're giving messages out around you know we need to get this quarter done we need to get this whatever your your, your fiscal period is that you're, you're 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 not sending mixed messages and that you're clear about that you know we want to achieve what we want to achieve but we want to achieve it in the right way mm. and 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 that is um you know for me it's not about winning at all costs. It's winning in the right circumstance. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we if we lose and we say, hey, you know, this was not the right thing for the cost for the customer, then you know, we need to be we need to make peace with that, right? And we've moved on from the you know the Gordon Gecko scenarios, the the Wolf of Wall Street, and and you know, the, I think those you know both of those tales end in destruction and disaster for those individuals. Uh, you know, so you see that, you know, winning, but then you see lots of, of, of losing afterwards. And for me, you know, what I would say is that it's having that balance of, you know, delivering results is important, 
but integrity is more important than results. Mm. And, you know, what I would say to anybody in uh, the year 2021, if you're working for a company where that integrity line is not clear and specific, I'd encourage you to work somewhere else yeah. because it's not worth your personal reputation being involved in, uh, in a company where that line is wavy, gray, dotted, um, because, because uh, ultimately, you know, your, your ability to uh, drive your own personal integrity is also associated mm. with companies uh, that, you, that, you, that you work with. And, and by the way, you know, back in, in the early 1990s, there was a, a particular a company in the, in the Dublin region who were notorious for a lack of integrity. Um, and, you know, at the time, um, you know, many of the individuals who, um, who worked for that company were driving Beamers and Mercs when the rest of us were driving, uh, you know, Nissan, uh, mm. I can't remember what the, the Primeras, that was it, mm. uh, Nissan Primeras, right? And, but the reality is that <clears throat> that company went, went bust spectacularly. And a lot of those individuals, their careers never recovered from that. Why? Because there were lots of doors shut to that company and those individuals um, later on, right? So I think so. So so for me, it's it's one of those things is that you know, I, integrity and leadership need to be very clear about what integrity means. And integrity means that you know these are the things we don't do. And if we if we don't hit our number because we didn't do the you know we didn't do these things that we could have done, that's okay. Right? Our integrity is more important than our results. Mm. So it's, it's it's values first and values are the ultimate value. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that needs to be the, that needs to be the, the, the guiding light uh, mm. for coming. And you know, I'm at a stage where, you know, I have 30 year B2B relationships with, uh, with, with, with people in many incarnations. Mm. And you know, that's the, um, you know, I know you know, uh, Jimmy Kyo, uh, who's currently with Vodafone, you know, uh, you know, we've gone from situations in the last 25 years where we were competitors. Then I was his customer. Mm. Then he's my customer, and he's currently my customer. And uh, you know that relationship dynamic. You know that's important. Okay. Yeah. Whereas you know if um, if let's say for example, you know when uh, I was his competitor, I had a reputation for doing things that were not. In a, in, you know, in a in the right way, then he probably wouldn't be in a position to trust me as a supplier. Yeah. And so, so it's it's really you know, integrity is one of my core values. I'm I'm very fortunate to uh, to work for a company where integrity uh, is absolutely down the center, as it was when I worked at Dell and when I worked at Fujitsu and, and some of the other companies I I worked for. So. Uh, yeah, don't work for companies where integrity is not important. You also have something else in common with Jimmy. You're both avid cyclists. Yeah, I got into cycling uh, about seven years ago, and um, and do a fair bit. I, I I I did close to eight thousand kilometers last year. Oof. Fortunately, with this weather we're having, I'm I'm, I'm probably going to finish on about seven thousand this year. But for me, it's uh, it's. Um, it, it's just, you know, an escape. I'm, I'm by, you know, I've, I've got mountain bikes, I've got gravel bikes, I've got road bikes. Um, so yeah, it's just, a, it, it's, it's a great de-stressor. Um, it's also, um, you know, some say cycling is the new golf. Um, albeit, I, 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 I've never played golf in a, in a, I played golf when I was a kid. <clears throat> and I remember years ago being told that in the early nineties, I was told if you, your career will not go anywhere unless you play golf. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so I do enjoy cycling. There's a lot of people in the industry uh, who are uh, who are involved in, in, in cycling. In fact, one of my um, former colleagues from Dell uh, is actually now making a living entirely from uh, from from cycling. Uh, he's making a big name for himself in, in the in the Nordics. Um, mm-hmm. sponsored by a number of sponsored by yeah. a number of people, so yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 I love it. You mentioned yet, yeah, you have a few bikes. Have you gone the e bike, e route, e bike route yet, or is that cheating? Um, I don't consider it to be cheating, um, so I haven't. Um, yeah. and um, whereas, um, I we I'm a member of a nice cycling club, yeah. uh, there's about 200 members in a cycling club, 
and actually some of the founding members are now in their 70s and um, and there's two in particular that are now using e-bikes they for all intents and purposes look like uh, the normal road bikes uh, but the interesting thing about over 25 kilometers an hour they're pedaling now a heavier bike so uh, for me it's fantastic that you know for people who are getting yeah. you know, to yeah. 70 plus that it allows them to continue to participate on the other side uh, I have um, I, 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 so, so my local bike shop is uh, bikeology and nace and, and they do a great job for us but some of the, and you know those guys are semi-pro mountain bikers mm. and they've turned to electric because um because the e-bikes are helping them get up and down yeah. you know yeah. get up the mountains more times in a, yeah. in, a, in a day but no i'm i'm, I'm holding off um I'm holding off my my last purchase. Um, I got a new bike, a, a quote unquote new bike recently. Um, it's an, a 1980s uh, vintage Ooh. Bianchi uh, racing bike with the gears on the downshifter. So, oh, wow. uh, which okay. which 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 goes remarkably well. It's yeah, got a yeah. 54 year old engine. That's the that's the problem with it. <laughs> I have to say. Uh, I'm only a couple of years ahead of you. I uh, I did get an e-bike recently. Uh, I have a regular kind of road bike, but the e-bike, I have to say, I love it. And I was in looking at it, and the the guy says, look, there's a few, well, several months waiting list on the bikes. He said, but I have one over here. And he says, the only problem now is, he said, it's a high-speed one. I said, what does that mean? And he says, it'll go at 45 kilometers an hour before it becomes a heavy bike. And uh, I, I got it. I have to say, okay. I, I, I love it. I do love it. And it's only because I, I feel I can go much further on it than... than... Well, that, 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 that's it. I mean, it, it's, there's a... Um, the, the, it's, it's create, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, like I live in Nace, it's 34 kilometers from Center City. Um, you know, that's now bikeable. Yeah. Uh, particularly with the uh, you know some of the upgraded infrastructure that the uh, that the that the government have been putting in place, you know, us being able to commute, um, you know, your daily commute on a bicycle uh, is, is opened up massively with uh, with with e-bikes. I uh, I probably like the suffering too much, so I won't be uh, I won't be <laughs> I won't be getting an e-bike just yet, but I will yeah. I do reserve the right to get yeah. one. Well, I, I'm I'm still suffering, but it's not with my legs. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'd like to go back, um, Liam, maybe talk to you a little bit about some of the, the contemporary current leadership topics that you're passionate about. What, what are they? Yeah, I, I think the, um, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the key thing that I am passionate about, um, you know, in the, say the last 10 years versus the previous 10 years, is absolutely ensuring that the organization that I lead is as diverse as possible. And that is, you know, rep and, and representing the communities in which we operate. And that mm. is, you know, if you, if you look at, um, it, it, it's, I've been fortunate enough to work for, um, you know, LinkedIn and then Dell before who as companies are passionate about this in a way that I hadn't seen before. And when you look at the, you know, the, the, the there, there's, there's two, in my opinion, there's two primary reasons why this is important to business leaders. Uh, more than two, but the, the, the two main ones are, you know, as a, as a citizen of Ireland, the EU, the world, um, you know, I want to live in a society where, um, where opportunity is equal, you know, talent. You know, you, you, you can have very talented people who don't get the right opportunities. And, you know, I am, you know, I came from, you know, not, not a, you know, a, a financially secure background. I happen to have been incredibly fortunate um, to, to, to have had the luck and the opera does pivot points that I was able to go, hey, luck is knocking mm. on the door, open up. But there's many people who are more talented than me more talented than lots of people who just never got the opportunity so so, so making sure that you know we you're creating an environment where uh, it's it's a diverse environment not just from a gender perspective 
uh, from an ethnicity perspective, but also from a socioeconomic and background perspective. Mm. And, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that, um, you know, I've worked for leaders who have had that approach. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, would have concerned me earlier on in my career was the fact that I didn't go to university. And instead of being uh, upfront about it, I never lied about it, but I wasn't, I never brought it up. I would, I would, you know, make sure I read the right book. So I sounded like I went to university, uh, you know, that sort of, that, that sort of stuff. And what's important is that, um, you know, had that been held against me, that would have stifled my career. And so part of it is, you know, paying back on, on, on that. So, so one part is that, hey, it's the right thing to do from a society, societal perspective. On the other hand, if you look at the, um, at the uh, now famous 2015 um, McKinsey study, and there's been many updates on it since then, but, you know, in 2015, you know, McKinsey did a study called Diversity Matters, and they looked at, you know, companies who were diverse across gender and ethnicity, um, and also uh, preferences and, and many different angles. And the more diverse the company, the better the per financial performance. And, you know, so therefore, you know, as a leader, uh, you've got two very significant um, reasons to, uh, to lean in and make sure that diversity is front of mind for you. And it's not just diversity, it's diverse, diversity, inclusion, but also importantly, uh, belonging so that you know people feel that they can be successful um, and, and, and any leader that doesn't have this as one of their top priorities then if not the top priority is potentially you know letting their business down letting their shareholders down letting their society down uh, so that's something I've become uh, mm. extremely uh, in, in, involved in um, and to a point where I sort of feel like I this is this was a blind spot for me um, before ten to eleven years ago, and therefore I'm 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 looking to make up on the time when I wasn't active. I, I what I would say, and I often talk to people about this, Paul, is that I wasn't uh, going out of my way to disadvantage people, um, but I wasn't I wasn't proactively going out of my way to level that disadvantage. Mm. Uh, so that so 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 that's there. The second thing I would say is. That I'm passionate about at the moment is, you know, talking to business leaders about that the game has changed, and that you know what are they doing to enable their team, um, you know, particularly millennials, and you know, millennials are now 39 years, uh, you know, up to 39 years old, which is uh, you know coming up on 50% of the of the workforce that that's there right now, and and you know when. Um, what does that look like? Well, you know, sales is very different now. You know, the, you know. I remember doing a um, a uh, this dates me a microfilm deal, you know, microfiche equipment deal with one of the large Irish banks back in 1992, working for Canon. Yeah. And at the time, I dealt with two people at that bank, um, and you know, one who was in procurement uh, for the negotiations, and the other person who. Uh, was a technical person who was, you know, writing the. This is the equipment we that we need, mm. and um, and 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 nobody else at Canon helped me, because not they didn't want to. It was my job to do it all. Mm. I needed to know the product. I needed to know the pricing, everything, um, and um, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, now what happens is that there's, you know, in in complex sales at large companies, there's somewhere between seven to 12 people involved in a buying circle or buying committee. And therefore, you know, the salesperson doesn't go to close the deal with any one individual. In fact, you know, I spoke to some people about this recently, the customer closes the deal with multiples of them in the room and you're not in the room. Mm. So, so then, you know, it's important that, you know, we're enabling our teams to understand what is that relationship fabric at each one of their customers? Mm. How do they how do they build relationships on top of that? And then the second thing is that you know in 1991, if you wanted to know about a Canon L770 uh, laser printer, it's sad that I can still remember the model numbers, but there you go. Um, the only way for any customer 
on the island of Ireland or on the planet, arguably at the time, to find out about the details of that product was to speak to me or another salesperson that I can. No other way, okay? Whereas, and, and therefore, you know, the value that salespeople brought to um, their customers and brought to their, uh, to their companies at the time was, you know, commercial negotiations, product knowledge, relationship management. Well, well, now that product knowledge is no longer relevant because the customer can find out everything about your product without your, without your salesperson. So, and we're seeing this reflected in, you know, Accenture have done reports, Forrester have done reports um, around, you know, the percentage of the journey that's complete before the salesperson gets involved and the willingness of buyers to engage with sellers specifically around product knowledge. So, so it's, it's, it's really helping business leaders to understand that, hey, you know, your sales teams and your businesses are operating in a 21st century environment. You need to give them the ability to perform as mm. uh, 21st century. And actually, you know, one of the things that I often talk to business leaders about, Paul, is that um, I think there's a, a parallel in sports. And if you think about, uh, you know, if you were putting a soccer team together uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, 80s, whatever era, what were you doing? You were looking for people with raw talent and you gave them structure and discipline. And then every Saturday you put them on the field of play against somebody else who was doing the same thing. Mm. And whereas, you know, at some point over the last 30, 40 years, you know, somebody went, hey, you know, this sports psychology thing, how about we try some of that? Sports nutrition. Mm. Now, you, now you have telemetry running on, you know, inside a pod um, by an Irish company, Statsports, in, in a lot of the, the, the premier clubs. So, so, and now some of the grounds also have 3D lasers around the top, so you can actually recreate the game that happened uh, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a graphic, uh, in a graphic model. Mm. So uh, it's all advanced, and so much so that, you know, it's my contention that um, you could take the, uh, this is very controversial, particularly when I say this in Brazil, you can take one of the 1970 Brazil World Cup winning teams, <laughs> including Pele. Ooh, now, now, now you've been really brave. <laughs> yeah, I've actually stopped saying this in Brazil, and uh, the um, and put them against a you know a reserve team uh, for a championship uh, team of the of of 2021, 20, and the 1960s or 70s team just would not win, and it's not because they don't have the raw talent and the, you haven't given them the structure and the discipline. But what's happened is this augmentation has happened. The, the, the newer team is, has better nutrition, better statistics, better understanding, and therefore uh, the game has moved on. And, 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 and that is something that a lot of uh, business leaders have gotten. Some business leaders have not gotten it. And that's, again, I'm super passionate about, I'm very fortunate I'm in a job where uh, we're helping uh, customers daily understand that, uh, that the world has changed and how I was successful as an individual salesperson in B2B uh, 30 years ago. It's just not the formula for success anymore. It's a, it's a different yeah. game. It's, it's interesting that because through LinkedIn, you are at the vanguard of that. But what also, also strikes me as interesting, par uh, the right word, is that if I, if I look at your career trajectory, Everything about it, whether it was by design or it just was by it just happenstance, is that you have been making yourself redundant as you go along. In that your computer skills with the Ataris and the the Spectrums, yeah. irrelevant, out of date. Your management style is gone, out of date. Uh, your your whole sales model that you grew up with is mm -hmm. out of date, and that if you're not constantly evolving and trying to stay ahead, you'll be out of date. Absolutely, absolutely, right. And and this is, you know, this is, um, you know, there was a there was a point in time when you know in the nineteen twenties when you know people like me and teams like the teams that I lead were selling ballpoint pens as a new technology to accountancy firms to make them more accurate, you know, be able to do their job more efficiently. Mm. Um, similarly, you know, similar people were were selling calculators in the nineteen seventies. Um, mobile phones in the 1990s and and you've got to assume that what you're doing today is uh, is either going to go away it, as in the case of fax machines 
or is going to become commoditized. Mm. And therefore, you know, you have to continually invest in yourself as an individual and build a skills currency that is exchangeable. Um, and also recognizing that, you know, skills that you had yesterday are not skills that are going to serve you. So it's constantly changing. And anybody who sort of has that fixed mindset of, you know, I'm really good at doing this and I'm just going to keep doing this and I'm not going to accept change. Um, well, we, we, we know how that ends up, right? It, it, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of companies. Um, you know, I, I, I often talk about, you know, if you think about, you know, Kodak is a good example. They dominated the um, the the 35 millimeter um, film market, right? Whether it was video or whether it was uh, photography, they missed digital, mm. and 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 the rest is history. Um, and you know that you know Netflix, Blockbuster, the, the the list. There's so many examples, and 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 that that success paradox, as it's called, also applies to individuals. It doesn't mm. matter that I was one of the, 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 the better fax salespeople that Canon had. And the, the market moved, the technology moved. And if I didn't reinvent myself, um, then hey, off you go. Similarly, you know, PCs were high value sales in the early 1990s, whereas now they're commoditized. Now, what's high value today is delivering PCs to a large bank with managed services and with, you know, that services wrapper and the, 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 the making it as, easy for the customer as possible. Uh, but the basic, no one needs a, no one needs a B2B salesperson to sell them an individual computer or even a hundred computers or a mm. thousand computers. So where then do you see the future of sales and by extension sales leadership? Yeah, I, I, I think if we look at it at sales, it's very much a buyer's first, you know, who are those companies that are focused on customer value? Who are those customer companies that are focused on, uh, you know, leaning in on the sales methodology for their for their for their staff, enabling their staff with the right technology, and making sure that they can stay on top of their uh, their their customers, but as well as that, uh, making sure that their sales and marketing efforts are are integrated. That sales and marketing is not this you know separate activity. It's all about the customer. So I think companies you know really investing in. What do they want their customer journey to look like? What's the repeatable part of it? How do they ensure that their customer gets an outcome that then creates a virtuous cycle where the customer gets an outcome, they come back for more, their relationship improves, and they keep going and going and going in a, in a, virtu in a virtuous partnership. Mm. When it comes to um, where, do, where do I believe you know, sales is going, Sales is always, B2B sales is always going to be relationship-led because trust is at, the, is, is, at the, is at the forefront of it. And yes, your customer you know, may commoditize part of what you're doing, but if, if, you, you don't deliver value in commoditization. So you need to continually focus on where is that value for, for, for the customer. Uh, and we've seen this time and time again uh, whether you look at technology or whether you look at, 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 at other industries. So uh, my own view is that, you know, we will, we will continue to see B2B relationships, but based on, um, on, on a real focus on customer value and having those um, customer supplier partnership based relationships uh, versus the uh, where, where, where it's come, where it's come from in the, in the distant past. And then if you were to, change anything about the relationship sales leadership has with the sales organization yeah. and how it supports and, and, and drives that, what would you change? What would you work on? Well, well I think you know, what's important is that um, being a sales leader today is, is also different to being a sales leader in the past. You know, many sales leadership positions in the past were more on the supervisory end. It's like, hey, your sales manager is here to make sure you do stuff. Again, you know, if you're working for a company like that, you know, I'd encourage you to look around in terms of there's many companies who have a different approach. I, I see the role of the sales leader, um, you know, uh, particularly direct frontline managers as your coach. 
right? And, uh, and it's that person's role is to help you understand how you get the most out of yourself and your territory uh, and, and how, you, how you deliver for your customer. Um, you know, in the, in, in the same way as Serena Williams' uh, backhand coach or, you know, uh, and, and so coaching is absolutely fundamental to the future leader. And that also needs to come with, um, you know, very well-focused authenticity uh, in that, you know, that how do you build trust between a salesperson and their, and their leader? How does a leader build trust? With an organization at scale has to be based on authenticity uh, but and, and then the last piece i'd say is you know having that vision and helping people connect to that connect to that vision is is super is super important it's you know what do you because we, we all enable customers to do something that's bigger than what we're doing we're just up on time, Liam, and I wanted to ask you two very, very quick personal questions before I let you go. One is this, uh, your house is burning down, your family are safe, your computer and your phone are safe too, uh, and what one object would you run back in to save and why? Um, what one object? Well, you didn't mention any bikes, so I've got seven bikes, so I'd probably try to save one. Could you pick between one of them? Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if there's something that I would run, you know, on the basis of, you know, family and, 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 you know, I, I, it's, it's funny you should ask me that question because I'm one of those people that used to do fire drills with my kids when they were younger, right? On the basis of that if something happened in the house and, yeah. and, and my mantra was it can all be replaced. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so I, so I wouldn't, um, there, yeah, there's, I'm not a sentimental person. I have a couple of things that are sentimental to me, but yeah, I, 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 as long as everyone was safe, I wouldn't be running back into the house. Okay, fair question. Uh, and it's also an excuse. I just thought about it there, Paul. Also an excuse to buy some new bikes. Okay, well, so. I, I, I get that one too. I do, I absolutely, yeah. Some things can't be replaced and are sentimental if you have the opportunity, but I, I get it. I don't know how, you've given me the perfect thing to talk to my wife the next time she complains about the fact that I've got three bikes. I'll say, hey, listen, that ain't nothing. I got four to go, but I do have seven cameras. That's my right, uh, okay. thing that I, I get, she complains about. Um, last question. When, when your time on this planet is done, and the erect a statue in your honor and at the base of the statue there's a little plaque in your written about you what would you like it to say uh, i think that the you know the overall uh phrase that i try you know like uh, is something along the lines of he, he you know he left the place in a, in a in in a better state, and I think that you know that is um, again going back to my to my family is that you know I, I see it as my as my role to uh, to you know for my kids to do better than I did, and yeah. you know so my you know my my great grandfather up in the hills of Wicklow needed to bring his 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 family down to the to a town to better economic opportunity. You know, my my grandfather's thing was uh, making sure uh, that his kids, um, you know, his kid, because he had one, uh, went to secondary school because nobody else had before. Um, I've now um, of the of the five kids that that, that, that I have, um, I have uh, three of them are out of college, um, and uh, two of them are in college. So, um, so 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 that's mm -hmm. my that that's 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 my contribution to mm -hmm. that. In terms of um, you know the rest, it's you know I, I I like to think that people think I'm a decent person. I'm sure you'll find a couple of people who don't, but I think the vast the vast majority of people that I interact with, uh, I try to have a positive impact on. It seems to be a philosophy because what I'm hearing is you're saying by bringing by making the place a bit better than the, the way you found it by contributing to it. In other words, what you're saying is you've brought some value, which seems to be your whole philosophy. Bring value or don't show up. Absolutely, right. And, and you know, like there's a, something that I'm, <clears throat> there, there's, you know, something that increasingly annoys me um, in, the, in the public domain at the moment is that there's, 
a lot of people who bash um, you know, Ireland, whether it's the government, whether it's the economy, uh, and you know, my, my answer to people like that is that this country is a completely different place to the country that I grew up in. Um, you know, we we have a we have very low levels of corruption, despite what some people would yeah. would would have you believe. We've got a we've we've got a decent health service. All health services get criticised everywhere. Um, you know, opportunity for people in this country is good it, economically. So so it, it so for me, you know, I, I I get very frustrated when I hear people bashing. Um, Ireland and the progress that we've made. This is this is an extremely different country uh, yeah. to the the country that we grew up in. Is it perfect? No, it's not. Is it a journey? Yes, it is. And I think that you know we need to recognise that it's a combination of you know large changes driven by uh, by, by 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 people, but also it's about those small changes that everybody else is is making. Yeah. So. Um, and, and, and I like to think that I've done a small amount to uh, contribute to that, and I, and I mean small amount, right? I'm not taking any credit for, for anything major. Liam, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure, uh, full of insight, as, as I was expecting, and I was told to expect. So thank you so much for sharing thank that you. with me and our listeners today. Uh, Liam Halpin, thank you for being my guest. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Paul. Bye for now.